Bibles and turn to John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, will be our text that we'll jump off with. And this is a perfect text to take a quick review of the book of John with. And you'll see it as I read these verses. The last scene that we saw last week is Thomas falling before the Lord Jesus and calling him my Lord and my God. And he reminds, as he thinks of us, he says, blessed are they who did not see and yet believe. He speaks about us 2,000 years ago in this text. And then John writes this in verse 30 and 31. He says, therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. You may be seated. Father, we thank you for the word of God. The Bible is our, our window to you in a sense, Lord. We grasp you and understand you, particularly through the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this morning, Lord, may you shine on us truth and understanding and worship of who you are through your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for these accounts that are written so that we may believe. Believe in Jesus as Messiah, as son of God, Lord. He changes our life. We give you credit for all that will be said now in Jesus' name. Amen. What an amazing book of John is, and I love these little verses here. I really see this as a, cha- a chance to review and be reminded of what we have learned over these last 93 sermons. Um, <laughs> you go counting them up, you go, wow, we've been here a while. But what an amazing book. And I, I tell you, I was thinking this morning and praying and talking to the Lord in my office. I said, Lord, there's so much I've left out. We could spend our life in these verses because the depth of the word of God cannot be plumbed. You cannot find its depth. And so we rejoice as we can study this again and again and find these truths. But look with me at verse 30 and 31 just as a way as an introduction here, some thoughts that are here. Verse 30 says, there were, there were many other signs that Jesus performed in the presence of disciples, which are not even written here in this book. I think what John is saying to us is that he had the privilege. God inspired this book through him. He wrote it, but the Holy Spirit moved him along. But God, using John, selected many signs to perform, that Jesus performed to tell us about. So he's telling us, look, I got to choose by the inspiration of God to share with you many of his signs, but he's telling us there were many others that Jesus did that were not recorded. Therefore, John has has not by any means written down all that we can know about Jesus. Isn't that amazing? He's just told us a portion of what Jesus did. John here says that these signs were done in the presence of the disciples. And I think that's a very strong word. Usually he uses the word witness here. But he actually used literally this term. He says, these were done before us. I think that's that's an interesting terminology. We, it's even stronger than an eyewitnesses that looks across the street and witnesses something. 
They say, he says, we, us disciples, were in his presence. They were done before us. We, we were there. They were done right in our presence. And there were many of them that we did not even record here. So certainly John is an adequate witness to tell us of these events of the person of Jesus Christ so that we may believe. Look at verse 31 with me. It says, but these things were written so that you may believe. So you may believe. Notice the term, these things were written. God has purpose to put down in writing what he desires you and I to know about him. Isn't that gracious of God? He has given us what we need to know about him. This knowledge comes through the written word of God. It's sufficient for you. It's sufficient for me. And God knows and he understands how to have a relationship with us through the word of God, through the spirit of God, through the life of Christ. And he's written these things. In fact, he, this little verb, um, have been written down, was in the in a perfect tense, which is interesting when you, when you think about the tenses of the Greek uses, it means it's adequate for past, it's adequate for present, and it's adequate for future. It doesn't get outdated. God has given us word, his word, and you can teach it to your children, they can teach it to their children, and their children, and their children, and it's still God's truth, and it never gets outdated. It's given to us. It's why we here at Grace Bible Church hold the scriptures in such high regard. They are our understanding of who God is through the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Purpose for his writing, notice this in verse 31, his purpose for this writing is that you may believe. So that you believe. Don't you think the Lord that somebody shared God's word with you at some day? That they, whether it's Sunday school or mom, <laughs> So many of us had our moms share the scriptures with us. Somebody told you the truth of God's word, whether they said it in a verse or they preached it in a sermon or it was in a Sunday school lesson or VBS or sitting on your bedside, somebody shared the word of God with you. And it was done so that you may believe. So that you may believe. Here the tense in again is a very interesting tense that Paul, excuse me, that uh, John chooses here. He chooses what's called an aorist subjunctive. And it literally means this, that it is beyond reasonable doubt and how can you not believe this truth? Isn't, that's what John's saying, that you, this has been written down so that without reasonable doubt you could put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the book of John is about. And John clearly throughout the book, as we'll be reminded again this morning, sees that faith alone in Christ is essential. And John longs to see people come to faith. That's what we love about the book of John. You hear his passion. He wants you to see and believe in Jesus and put a true saving faith, a God-given faith into the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. And John has the privilege of bearing personal witness to these events and the signs that Jesus performed. And he watched as God acted purposefully to draw people to himself. He watched blind men. He watched women at wells. He watched God purposely draw men to himself through the Lord Jesus Christ. He saw it happen time and time again. John also never spoke of faith as a vague faith or a vague trust. 
When you study the terms believe throughout the scriptures, it is a deep commitment to these truths. We don't vaguely believe in Jesus. We don't vaguely believe that he is the way, the truth, and the life. I mean, how do you even say those words together? Well, he's kind of the way, kind of the truth, and he might be the way or life. No, it's deep commitment to Jesus Christ. We have nothing else. Apart from you, we can do nothing. That's what the Bible teaches over and over, particularly in the Gospel of John. Notice how he references belief in Jesus. He says, we believe that Jesus is the Christ. First, he is called the Christ Messiah. This is the long-expected one. So now he's hitting a broader audience. He's actually hitting a Hebrew audience here as well in this statement. He is the one you've been waiting for. He is the one promised in the Garden of Eden. He is the one who will crush the head of Satan. He is the one that can redeem Israel, can redeem men and women whose faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one sent from God. One of the verbs that's used more often in John is the word sent. Over and over, God sent him to you to bring you to a knowledge of himself. He is the long expected one. The next title he gives that Jesus is the son of God, the second member of the Trinity. This is God incarnate with us. This is God in the manger. This is God walking the streets of of Judea and Jerusalem and Israel with, with 12 disciples. This is God among men, residing with them in order to save them. Now when we see, you and I see and understand this as we've read this, we see, yes, he is the Messiah. Yes, he is the Son of God. Yes, he is incarnate God. But to the Jews that day, they couldn't mix Messiah and Son of God together. It was extremely difficult for them. And John takes these truths and he drives it home over and over. He's the sent one and he's God. He's the sent one and he's a God. And that's why John lifts our view of Jesus Christ very high. If you study the book of John, it pushes you to have a very high view of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because John sees him as both Messiah, Son of God, God incarnate. And when you just close out what we did last week, when we got to verse 28, if you just glance above, Thomas, at the end of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, stands before him, resurrected Savior, and falls before him doubtlessly and says, my Lord and my God. Absolutely captivated with God incarnate. And that's the end of John. That's what John wants you to come to the conclusion that he is God, he's savior, he's friend. He's one that brings you into the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he alone is the way, the truth, and the life. What I'd like to do this morning is just take you back to John chapter one and work my way back through just picking out just a couple of verses in each chapter just for you to circle or jot in your notes just to see these great truths as we look back at the gospel of John. As John is telling us, why witness these things? These things were done before me. And I pray your heart would be truly encouraged. And I pray you'll go back and read John time and time again. And fall deeply in love with our Savior. You notice the very first verse of John 1. In the beginning was the Word. He was eternal. 
He did not have a beginning like you and I. He was not birthed. He has eternal. In the beginning was the word. Before there was anything, there was the word. And the word is Jesus Christ here. We see that develop throughout the text. And the word was with God. And remember that with is a, is a term that brings equality. He stood with God. He only he could stand with God. He was equal to God. And notice the word was God. There's no doubt in John's mind that Jesus was God incarnate. He came to the earth in verse 14 as you follow this down. The word Jesus became flesh. He came to this world and he dwelt among us. He walked among us. He was with us. He dealt with everything we dealt with. And we saw his glory, John says. And not just any glory, but the glory of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John says, look, you want to ask us, the guys who were there? He's God. You can listen to liberals and all those other think. I'm telling you, I was there. He's God. And the Bible tells us that over and over again. But he's also Savior. Look at verse 29. John the Baptist here, who said he wasn't even worthy to unlatch the strap of his sandal. He puts Jesus Christ way above him. And he says in verse 29 that he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So here's God incarnate coming to save men. And John the Baptist sees him and says, there he is. There's the final sacrifice. He's the lamb. It's all going to be done with him. You want to go to heaven? You want your sins forgiven? You got to go through him. That's why we love John the Baptist. Jesus said his ministry was the greatest ministry on earth. The greatest man born among women. Because he exalted Christ. He put Christ out ahead of anything else. And then he selects his disciples at the end of John chapter 1, verse 50. Jesus said to him, because I say to you, you saw me under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these, Nathaniel. Oh my goodness. What Nathaniel saw. He saw men get their sight back. He saw bleeding women stop bleeding and believe. He saw dead children of Roman centurions come to life. He saw paralytics lowered down and healed and their sins forgiven. He saw the resurrected Savior with nails in his hands, with our forgiveness painted on those. Boy, can you imagine that verse as they saw it? Chapter 2, we see Jesus' ministry begin publicly. He goes and there's a, uh, a wedding and he comes and he changes the water into wine. What a teaching, if you remember that, that, that he's replacing this purification system that they had of washing yourself and trying to get yourself clean, trying to get yourself ready to come to God. Many times we've heard over and over people say, well, I'll come to church when I'm, when I'm doing better. This is the system, that's the system Christ replaces. He comes and says, no, come to me. I'll make you better. I'll be the best. And when that wine was brought out, they said, who saves the best for last? Jesus does. Because up to then, you had to work your way, it seemed. You had to try to work your way. And that was what was displayed in front of them, ritualistic and, and, and do this and don't do this and don't eat that. And Jesus says, look, drink me and I will cleanse you. Chapter 2, verse 21, we see where he says, 
as he comes in and he talks about the temple, he cleanses out the temple and they're not happy with him and he says, I'm gonna tear this temple down. But verse 21 says he was speaking about the temple of his body and here he's speaking, look, I'm gonna come and you're gonna crucify me. This temple's gonna be put on a cross and die but it's gonna be raised again. And they didn't get it but many people were trying to follow him and see him in verse 23 and see his signs. But Jesus, look at verse 24, Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them for he knew all men. He knew lots of people just like the theme of Jesus. Oh, Jesus is cool. Oh, Jesus, let's follow Jesus. Maybe we'll get something from Jesus. Jesus knew there's a lot of people that look at him as that way. And so he was not entrusting himself to just to the masses of people. Chapter three, we start to see this in this individual relationship Nicodemus, the great Sanhedrin leader, comes to him at night. He doubtlessly is afraid of being seen with Jesus. And he wants to know how to get the kingdom of God. John says to him, look. Jesus says to him, verse 7, recorded by John, do not be amazed that I say you must be born again. There must be a rebirth. You and I, as we are born into this world, cannot get through the gates of heaven. God is holy and perfect. We're sinners. We must be rebirthed. It is a regeneration that comes upon us through the work of the Spirit. In fact, verse 8, to know this is of God and not of man, just making some choice. You know what is of God. He says, the wind blows where it wishes and you do not hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. It is a sovereign work of God. And Jesus says, here's how it's going to work. Verse 14, as Moses was lifted up in a serpent in the, in the wilderness, well, lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. So whoever believes will, uh, will in him have eternal life. And so John lays out this message of Jesus Christ, and it's simply this. If you want to go to heaven, if you want your sins forgiven, believe in Jesus. And those who believe are the elect. The Bible is very clear on that. We'll see as we go on. They're the elect. The, the elect believe. You want to go to hell? Reject Jesus. That's what the Bible teaches. God's sovereign in all things. But the Bible teaches clearly, if you want to go to heaven, if you want to, your sins forgiven, put your faith in Jesus. Just as a serpent was lifted up and all those who looked at him were healed, so when Jesus is lifted up, when you see him lifted up, when the gospel is preached to you and you believe, your sins will be forgiven. But... The Bible also says that if you don't believe, you're judged already in verse 18. You're already under judgment. The rejection of Jesus because he is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to him except through Jesus. He turns back to John. John said in verse 27, John answered and said after asking him if he, who is this Christ and what is he doing? He says, a man can receive nothing of himself. If it's not been given from heaven, he received everything. I'm just a witness of Jesus Christ. I'm sent ahead of him, verse 28. And he gives a great analogy, and I love this verse. I've preached this verse many times at many conferences since I've learned it from here. He who is the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine is made been made full, he must increase, but I must decrease. What a statement. You can see that, right? He heaven forbid if the 
the best man takes priority over the groom. And John said, no, no, I am here to applaud the groom. I am his biggest fan. My joy is made complete when he is honored. And this is why he was called the greatest man born among women, because he pulled back and pushed Christ forward. What a great reminder for our own lives. From there, John moves to the teaching of Jesus as he deals with a Samaritan woman at the well. John 4 is a beautiful text. And just quickly, let me remind you, he comes to a woman that clearly was living in a life of immorality. She's on her fifth man that the Bible records here. Jesus says, give me some water at the well. You remember the story, don't you? He says to her, if you knew who I was, you would ask for the living water. She goes, how do I get this water? You don't even have a bucket. She goes, look, I have the ability to bring water that will well up among you that it's everlasting. And he begins to share the gospel, that he is the gospel, and through him you can come to God. He says there's an hour coming there's a big discussion of where worship is. And he says, it's coming, the Father seeking worship. And the worship is going to come through me. I am the Messiah. Verse 25. And it changed this woman's life so greatly that the entire town, when you follow verse 39 and follow, following, comes out to hear the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and repents. End of chapter 4. The nobleman's son is, is healed. We find that there he, he begs with Jesus, he pleads. Jesus sees the faith that this, this man has and he tells him, your son is healed, go. And in verse 52, he gets there and he inquires of them the hour because they said, look, your son's alive, he's, he's been made well. And in verse 52, he inquires of the hour that it happened when he got better. And they said to him, yesterday at his seventh hour, the fever left him and the father knew it was the hour he was with Jesus. What an amazing event that John had before him. Chapter five, an overwhelming chapter, too much in it to take too much time here, but chapter five is probably one of the most in-depth instructions of the equality of Jesus as God throughout it. First of all, he heals and does something no one can do. He heals a man at the pool of Bethsaida. And then in verse 18, he launches into the fact that he is equal with God and they pick it up. The Jews want to kill him because they made himself out to be equal with God. He certainly was. He says, I'm doing my father's work. The father's been working until now. Now I'm doing the work. Verse 17. And so as they work their way, as they, John follows the life of Christ, he keeps recording these events. Verse 21 and 22, for just as the father raised the dead and gives life to them, even so the son also gives life to whom he wishes. Isn't that an amazing verse? That, that verse is just cremated in my passage here. It's just marked all over because I find such great truth in this. I'm saved because the son wishes for me to be saved. See, that's why salvation is personal. So many people don't understand. They, they have some religious views of God and Jesus, but then you study the word of God and you go, this is personal. Jesus knew me. He wishes for me to know him. He desires for that. This is a sovereign selection of our Lord and God of believers to follow him. 
Verse 22, for not even the father judges anyone, but he has given it all to to the son, verse 23, so that you will honor the son even as you honor the father. And he just keeps talking about equality and quality and quality. And the people got madder and madder and wanted to put him to death. Verse 30. Now he goes back and says, I'm one with the father. I can't do anything on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. My judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the one who sent me. He doesn't work outside the Father. Him and the Father work together. They are one in all that they do. This testimony is seen throughout the book of John. But here in verse 39, I want you to call your attention to this. Jesus dealing with those who are hard-hearted and rejected him as Savior. He says to them, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And you remember this text. He, he outlines clearly that, that man is always trying to get to God through some religious system. Some do's and don'ts. Go to church. Don't eat this. Don't be seen with these people. Don't do that. Don't have this. That's what they did. They searched the scriptures and they came up with a long list. But Jesus said in this verse, it is these, the scriptures, that testify about me. So the Bible is about Jesus. And it's about how you get to the Father. You come to him through the Lord Jesus Christ, not through some religious system that man has come up with. But in the end, they rejected that. And they sought to put him to death. Chapter 6 introduces him feeding masses of people. He has two loaves of bread and a couple of fishes. (laughs) He breaks them up, blesses them, and gives them out. In verse 13, says they gathered 12 filled baskets with leftovers. And then he launches into one of the most incredible teachings in John 6, much in John 6, but here's the emphasis of it. I am the what? The bread of life. You want to live? Eat me. It's a, it's, it, was a, it was a term that drove them crazy. Many people said, I can't walk with him anymore at the end of the book. But basically, you hear what Jesus was saying Look, if you don't consume me, if you don't take me in fully, devour me, believe in me, understand who I am, you will die. I am the bread of life. And he launched into this great sermon on this. And it overwhelms people greatly of who he said he is. Look at verse 57. As the living father sent me, I live because of the Father, so that he who eats me, consumes me, takes me in, feeds upon me. The truth of who he is, look at this, he also will live because of me. You want life? Put your faith in Jesus Christ. You want death? Reject him as your savior. That's what John does over and over and over. He presents Jesus Christ as the only way to the Father, the only way to heaven, And the rejection of him brings death over and over and over. He says these things. Chapter 7, quickly he just goes to the feast. Remember, they tried to make him king and take him up because he was feeding them. He didn't want to go their way. He didn't want to be their king at that time. So he comes up to the feast later. And chapter 7 is a glorious text that reminds us of who he is. Verse 15, he begins teaching, and the Jews then were astonished at his teaching. They said, how has this man become learned 
having never been educated. See, he didn't come through their systems. He didn't come through their schools. He didn't have the rabbinical training that all the other religious leaders had. And so Jesus answered and said to them in verse 16, my teaching is not mine, but it is his who sent me. I'm telling you what God says. That's what he's saying at first. You want to know what God says? I'm telling you what he says. My teaching's coming right from the Father. Verse 17, if anyone is willing to do his will, he will know the teaching, whether it's of God or whether I speak of myself. You'll know it. You'll You'll understand it. Verse 18, he who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. But he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him, he is true. And there is no unrighteousness in him. So he says, look, you can trust me. I'm speaking on behalf of the Father. I'm giving you the words of God. That's why we call this the word of God. Christ is speaking to us. Verse 37 and 38. Now now on the last day of the great feast, here he's at the great feast, the last part of this was the remembrance that the water flowed from the rock and that God fed the thirsty Hebrews in the desert. And at this part of the feast, Jesus stands up and he says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. And he who, look at this, believes, this is John's theme, believe in me, as the scripture says, from his innermost being, from the soul of this person, will flow rivers of living water. Are you thirsty spiritually? Jesus will quench it. And it'll be a a river that won't quit. I, I think you hear that here on Sunday mornings. The way we sing, the way we care for one another, the way we, we preach and hold God's words. It's, it's a living water that just comes out of us. We can't, it's not something you produce. It's something that God does within you and you proclaim his truths. And you're excited about it and it affects everything in your life. Chapter eight, the great chapter of, of our Lord presenting him as freedom. Verse 34 says that Jesus answered, and truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. So he's saying, look, that's everybody. Everybody's a slave of sin when you're born. He's speaking of depravity. But look at verse 36. So if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. So chapters 8, this great, ver- great chapter that helps you understand you can be free of your sins. Jesus is a way that you can get your shackles taken off of you. And not just free for the moment. But free indeed, the Bible says, free completely forever, free from your sins. It says in verse 51, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. That's a great, that's a great line, isn't it? If you believe in Jesus, you'll never see death, such as the death of dying in your sins. I love that verse. I will die someday if the Lord doesn't return. And you'll lay me in a coffin and maybe two or three of you will show up. But I will not see the death of sin. The Bible shows that here. Sin cannot take me to the grave. I'm free from it. I will see my Lord from, from this present life. I will made, move instantly to my heavenly father. So will you. And you obey his word. And what is a word? Put your faith in Jesus. Believe. And you will not see death. This angered the Jews that he could offer such a life. And he begins to tell them that, look, before Abraham was, I am. And he uses a very strong word there. Yahweh. I'm God. 
And they immediately pick up stones and he kept trying to show them, look, I am God. And the reason he does this over and over because if he is not God, he cannot forgive your sins. And when he hangs on the cross, if he's not God, he's not forgiven. You must probably have to do a whole list of other things to try to get that. We understand that. And we grasp that from this. Chapter nine, the healing of the blind man. What, a, what an incredible chapter. This man is blind from birth. And, and just quickly, remember this. They're so mad. They don't like this. He heals them on a Sabbath. They bring him in. And he says, look, I don't know what to tell you. I was blind, now I see. This man over here did it. Do you want to know him too? <laughs> and, and he just, they get so ticked off at him. And eventually they throw him out in verse 30. They throw him out of the synagogue. And if you're thrown out of the synagogue, you now go to hell. There's no way to heaven. And their beliefs. And Jesus, uh, and, and, and uh, this, this uneducated man, all he knew was Jesus healed him. And I think it's more than just a physical thing he's speaking of because Jesus appears to him shortly after this and he says, do you believe? And he says, show me the Lord. Lord, show him to me. Show me who the Lord is. And he says, I'm standing in front of you. He says, I believe. And that man received a lot more than his sight back that day. He received forgiveness. Chapter 10, uh, truly a favorite of mine. It is in the list of many of the I am's. Verse nine, I am the door you can't be saved unless you come through Jesus. There's one door, and there's one keeper of that door, and he's his chief shepherd. And verse 14 says, I'm that good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Boy, that's sovereign, isn't it? He knows you. And, and, and the text tells us that he calls us by name, and he calls in his sheep. He brings them into the full, and nobody gets past him that doesn't belong there and he brings everyone past him and he understands who they are. And when he calls, you respond because you belong to him. So how did, how did you get saved? God called me. The chief shepherd said, hey, I want you in the full. We call it irresistible grace. And he brings you and you come and you hear his voice. And you go, well, maybe this was just a Jewish pastor. So look at verse 16. I have other sheep <laughs> which are not of this fold. They live in Hollister. And look at the strong verbs. I must bring them also and they will hear my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. Oh, it doesn't, color, it doesn't matter what color your skin is, what your ethnic background is, your economic status. It does not matter. He calls a massive flock to himself and he makes them one and he shepherds all of them. Isn't that wonderful? Is your heart not comforted? You have a shepherd who's watching over you. And when you want to wander somewhere and stick your head to a fence that does not belong, the shepherd's coming after you because he loves you. And he says, Scott, get out of there. Get back over with me. I've been calling you. Walk with me. I'm taking you to greener pastures because verse 27 26, but you do not believe there's those that are standing in because you're not my sheep. You go, why doesn't all the world come to Jesus? Why don't they just bend the knee? They're not his sheep. They're sheep of some other flock. They don't want this shepherd. Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life. Hey, praise the Lord, you're a sheep. You live in a world full of coyotes and you have a shepherd that's watching over your soul. 
and he's following you and he keeps track of you and he will not let you be devoured by someone. Put your faith in Jesus. He will, he will bring you to that final pasture. Chapter 11, the resurrection of Lazarus. Another great statement, verse 25, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. Here he goes again. You may die. You're all gonna die if the Lord doesn't return. I hope that isn't new news to you. But when you believe in Jesus Christ, you do not die eternally. You live. And our Savior's coming in, so to demonstrate this, he takes his good old friend Lazarus that he let die because he has control of all things. He says, roll that stone back. Mary goes, Oh man, you know what's going to come out of that? Because they say when they seal the tomb, there's a reason they seal that tomb. Because there's not a real good smell coming out of that thing. They break that seal. And out comes a man and he says, come out. And Jesus did this to show you and I that he has the power over death. He can control that. He has it. He can bring you out. And, and, and chapter 11 is such a teaching of your and I salvation. Ephesians 2 Chapter, chapter two, verse one says, you and I are dead in our sins. And Jesus says, come out. Come out of your spiritual tomb. I awaken you to myself. And he calls you out. And you believe and you go, man, he is God. He, he died for me. I don't know much about that Bible thing, but I believe in that Jesus. And when you believe in the chief shepherd, you start studying about him. What a beautiful Beautiful teaching of our life in Christ. Chapter 12 is the response to being raised from the dead. Mary worships the Lord, breaks this pound of costly perfume. Judas goes ballistic because he's a thief. And, and Mary just starts worshiping Christ as God in this chapter 12. She's enthralled with him. And ladies, verse after verse, text after text, you see how Christ cherishes biblical womanhood. And Mary is one of these great teachings that has to be at the feet of Jesus. She lives at the feet of Jesus. She gives her retirement, most likely, to, the G, to, to Jesus Christ. And then he enters into Jerusalem the final time. He walks in. They herald him as king of Israel in verse 13. And they worship him, and the Pharisees cry out and say, stop this, and he says, look, the stones will cry out if they don't. This was prophesied that this would happen. In verse 27, Jesus begins to foretell his death. He says, look, my hour has come now. I've come for this purpose. This is what I'm here for. Father, glorify your name in verse 28. How's he gonna do that? He's gonna glorify his name by hanging his son on a cross, judging him for your and I's sin so you and I can be free. Isn't that amazing? That's how, that's how he's going to be glorified. Don't miss that in the text. He's going to be glorified by dying for you and I. It's the greatest work of God to, to resurrect dead people through the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. 13, the Lord Jesus begins to give an example to his disciples. He washes their feet. It is the most lowly job of a servant could have. And he demonstrates to them this is the type of love, this is the type of servanthood I want the leadership of the new church age that's gonna begin on Acts 2 to live. And these men later remembered this. 
And they began to serve in this way. And they began to care for others in this way. And the disciples laid their life down for the early church. In fact, they died for the message of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving it to people. End of the chapter in verse 13, Jesus predicts that Judas is going to reject him. Verse 27, after the morsel, Satan entered into him. This is Judas. Therefore, Jesus said to him, what you do, do quickly. Those are sad verses. A man that rejected Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God, he did not see him like John sees him in this, and he's willing to sell him for the price of a slave. He does this, and he leaves and departs. But chapter 14, he turns to the 11 now. He says, look, I know your trouble. I've been telling you things that I'm gonna die, but look, believe in God, believe also in me. I love that little verse right there. Do not believe any different about God than you believe in me. Do not believe any different in me than you believe in God. That's where you find peace. That's where you find peace. And I'm going to prepare a place for you. And I'm coming back. And then he goes on down through here. Remember, he says, look, I'm I'm leaving. I must go, but I'm leaving you a helper. The very spirit of God Almighty is gonna come and dwell within you. He will abide with you, verse 17. And you will be in you and he will take the things that I give to him and he will give them to you. He's called the comforter. The Greek word is paraclete. He will abide and comfort and guide you and direct you. What a great gift God gave us. The Holy Spirit, even to this day. Chapter 15, the great teaching on the vine. We sang this several times today. Ron led us several times in verse five. I don't know if you caught this. I am the vine, you are the branches. Who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. Now notice this is what we sang For apart from me, you can do nothing. At least two of Ron's songs said that verse in there. And it's a great statement. What are you trying to do without Jesus? Trying to be a good husband, good wife? What are you doing apart from Jesus? You can't do it. You can't do it. Lord, I need thee every hour. We just sang it. I need you. John 15 reminds us that, look, he's the main vine. All the nutrition, all the fruit, everything comes from him. Why do you not want to be plugged into the main vine? We go tromping out of the house on our own little vine trek. Boy, we gotta learn verse five, brothers and sisters. Lord, I need you. I need you. I need your discernment. I need your wisdom. I need help parenting. I need help loving my spouse. I I need help to discern things that are of you and things that are not of you. I need your word in my life. Out of time, but 16, he comes back to the spirit of God again. This is all the night before his death. I'm giving you the spirit, verse 13, but when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He'll not speak on his own initiative. He won't bark and laugh and do crazy things that draw attention to himself. But he'll take what he hears and he'll speak and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me. You want to know what the role of the Spirit is? To glorify Jesus. That's it. That's his role. He doesn't do anything other than that. That leads him to 17, his high priestly prayer before he dies. This is just moments before Judas shows up 
and betrays him with a kiss. And here he is. Listen to what he says in chapter 17, verse 5. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself. Now look at this. With the glory which I had with you before the world was. Do not tell me he's not God. God says throughout the entire Old Testament, I will share my glory with no one. And Jesus says, let's share it again together. He's got to be God. He has to be. And then he reminds, he tells, talks about us in this prayer, verse 20. We have to see this. I, I do not ask on my behalf of these alone, just these 11 here, but for those who also believe in me through their words. That's what the New Testament is. The words of the apostles. And he prays for you and I the night before he dies. Oh, he is a gracious, gracious God. 18, he is betrayed by Judas. In the middle of 18, he's brought before the priest. They treat him horribly on our, for our account. Simon Peter's following, but when he has a chance to stand for Jesus, he denies him. Don't point fingers at him. How many times have you and I denied Christ his rightful standing in our lives? But like Peter, Peter goes out and reaps bitterly. And we'll see in the coming weeks, the last three sermons of John are 21. We're going to watch the Lord restore Peter. But then Jesus is brought before Pilate who thinks he's in absolute control. He says three times over and over in this text, I find no guilt in him, verse 38. Verse 6 of chapter 19, I find no guilt in him. He keeps trying to release him, but the Jews cry out to have him killed, have him crucified. Pilate thinks he's in control, but verse 11, Jesus answers and says, You have no authority over me unless it has been given to you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you is the greater sin. Listen, Pilate, you're not in control here. God's doing this. God is putting me on that cross to die for those people in Hollister. Isn't that amazing? And then he's crucified. There's not much made of the crucifixion itself. Verse 18, there they crucified him. Doesn't talk about nails or any of that. We understand it from history what they did to him, but he hung there on the cross for us. And then verse 30, the greatest words a Christian can ever hear. Middle of the text, verse 30, and he said, it is finished. The veil's torn. Do not try to come through me any other way. I have completed it. The Father is now satisfied with my payment. Believe in Jesus. See what John's doing? He's sharing the gospel with you. He wants us to believe. He wants us to live in light of Jesus Christ. His body's taken down and cared for by men who probably later were murdered for what they did. But on, on, on chapter 20, the tomb is empty. Peter and, and John are witnesses of it. And then Mary, she, he appears to Mary. Mary had nothing outside of Jesus. She is such a great teacher. Verse 16, Jesus says, just mentions her name, Mary, and she knew it was the chief shepherd. Remember, he calls, he calls and we hear his voice. He calls Mary, and she knew it was Jesus. Verse 16. And then he starts appearing to the disciples. And that brings us to our text. 
Finally, Thomas, hard-hearted Thomas, I won't believe unless I can put my fingers in the hands hole or thrust my hand in his side. And Jesus says, start putting your fingers in and start thrusting because I'm here. And Thomas melts. My Lord and my God. And then John says, there were so many other signs performed right before us. The end of verse 25 in chapter 21 says we can't record this because the world can't hold the books. Verse 31 says, but these have been written, back in 20, these have been written so that you might believe. Do you believe in Jesus? Do you have a saving faith? Did God give it to you or did you get it yourself? If God gave it to you, you believe. When the world rejects this completely, and they will, you will keep believing. You'll keep persevering. You'll keep going on. Christians keep persevering because they believe this is our life now. That's what the book of John's about. I'd encourage you. Let me challenge you. Read through the book of John this week. I'm going to, after Jerry's here next week, I'm going to preached the last three sermons of of John chapter 21 and they are astounding. You don't want to miss it. But I would ask you to read the book of John once through at least this week. Maybe two or three chapters a day. Read through and believe. Dear Jesus, we thank you that you are the living God, that you are the Messiah, you are the sent one. We thank you that you are the son of God. You came fully God, fully man so you could die for us, Lord. And like John, we believe you to be both the sent one, the Messiah one, the long-awaited one, Lord, and we believe you as the second member of the Trinity, the Son of God, God incarnate so you could die for us, Lord, because no one else could do that. No one else could forgive us of our sins. We believe. We put our faith. And Lord, because we believe this, Lord, you said that we will not die, we will live forever, and you have a kingdom that is coming You have a kingdom that's coming. We will be a part of that, Lord. We're astounded, Lord, that you would take sinners like us and you would cleanse us of our sins, let us live for you on this earth, and then make us part of your kingdom for eternity. Oh, Lord, you deserve our praise and our adoration, and we give it to you freely now. In Jesus' name, amen.